0: It is amazing how uh, often I stand here in this place and speak, and then when it comes to a chapel, to try and figure out what to share with you guys. Uh, I see some of you from week to week on Sundays, and uh, we appreciate having you and stand here at Grace, ready to be of any help that we can. And uh, especially the new days of the Master's College. Um, I suppose if if any pastor comes, one of the things that he's tempted to share, which I succumb to today is a pet peeve. And so uh, I'm picking on a pet peeve of mine, and I got into trouble a little bit here when I was here the first three or four months in using a couple of illustrations about this pet peeve of mine that I have that sometimes happens to believers. Um, My pet peeve is mediocrity in believers. Now, the example I used in a service one time here a few months ago was avocados and vanilla. And I paid a great price for that after church. Because I went to visit a home with some couples uh, who were getting together to eat. And I was served an avocado Sunday. <laughs> it, it was half an avocado filled with vanilla ice cream. And uh, I ate some, just to be kind. But it, it was a little hard to choke down. Uh, the reason I use avocado to exemplify mediocrity is that it to me is the epitome of mediocrity it has no taste in and of itself you must add something to it to make it guacamole uh, you've got to add something else to it it is basically a platform for launching culinary flavors uh, and it it has always bothered me therefore I had in my office for two months following an avocado Uh, that was given to me by the Avocados Growers Association (laughs) who I offended slightly with that remark. Vanilla ice cream also is the epitome of mediocrity to me. You go to Baskin-Robbins and they have low so many flavors. And I have a son who is 10 years old. We take him there and they have Rocky Road. They have the flavor of the month. They have flavors that they can add to flavors to make flavors that you can't describe. And I look at him and I say, Tommy... What do you want? Vanilla. Not even French vanilla. Vanilla. Son, we could go to Thrifty's and for 15 cents we could get vanilla. We're in high-class country here. Order something that's worth a dollar a scoop, would you please? You see, the reason that I'm against mediocrity is because I believe that it has been substituted for a number of other things in the life of believers. You guys are at a formative time in your life in terms of being what you're going to be before Christ. Some of you, most of you, are in training for something that's going to lead into ministry. And when you run in and to people and you bump into people who are involved in ministry, one of the things that just gets me down when I get around preachers is that they are benign and bland. Uh, they believe that that is spiritual. That in order to be lofty and walk deeply with God, you must be boring. I do not believe that's the case. I don't believe you can build a case from Scripture on that. You can't take me through Hebrews 11 and find those people who were marked with faith and tell me that they were benign people. You look closely at that uh, list of folks that are called the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews sometimes, and then you go back and historically check them out and see what kind of life they lived. It was anything but benign or bland. So. Really, the burden I place on myself this morning for the few minutes that we're together is to talk with you about how do you overcome blandness, being benign, mediocrity. Well, it would be easy to whip something together, but I believe that the Apostle Paul in the Thessalonian epistles, in his defense, began to list the basic elements that can lead to anything but mediocrity, anything but being benign. If you'll open the first Thessalonians chapter two this morning, you'll come to a portion of Scripture that obviously follows chapter one. The Book of the Thessalonians is an interesting book of all the New Testament churches that I would love to visit as it was, it would be the Thessalonian Church. Some of you know that in Acts chapter 17, the first seven or eight verses, the story of the founding of the Thessalonian Church is found. It is a place where apparently, if I understand Acts 17 correctly, the apostle at most was only able to spend four weeks there. And then basically it was by word of Timothy later on in the same missionary journey after the planning of the Thessalonian church and being previously jailed in Philippi, that Paul hears how they're doing. And some of you, if you want to read what really changed people are like and what excites those who preach the gospel, you read the first ten verses All of the 10 verses of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Apostle Paul is thrilled. He said, word of your witness has gone out. It is trumpeted, literally. It's trumpeted forth. He said, it's so good that when we go around and you mention Thessalonica, you don't have to say anything else about the power of Jesus Christ to change the lives of people. You don't have to because you have been marvelously changed. You've turned from idols, those dumb things of stone and wood, to the true and living God. He said, wherever I travel, I'm beginning to hear about this. But then in chapter two, the apostle begins without saying exactly what's been uh, he's been accused of in the first 12 verses of chapter two to give a defense, a defense of his ministry. But in that defense, I find the elements that will help us be more than benign, that will help us be people who committed to Jesus Christ are contagious in our faith. Who dramatically alter the circumstances in which they find themselves. Who do not see mediocrity as a blessing, but as a curse. What Paul essentially does in the 12 verses of chapter 2 is answer some of the criticisms that Timothy has brought to him. That apparently were filed by him by the antagonists of the gospel in Thessalonica after his hasty departure from the house of Jason. What are the elements? That'll help us break out of mediocrity. Verses 1 and 2 contain the first charge. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. amid much opposition. Between the lines of this, of these two verses, is the implication that Paul was a coward. That he ran out of town. That he snuck out. Such is the case in fact that he was spirited out of town much to his own protest but his response to the unkind of written charge that I'm a coward he says our coming to you wasn't in vain something happened after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi we all remember the story of Philippi which was the previous stop before Thessalonica not exactly a highlight on the tour jail earthquake the apostle Paul Silas sang in prison. Now, quite frankly, for most of us, that would have discouraged any other missionary adventure. We would have speedily headed back home. But Paul says, look, we were jailed in Philippi. We lived through an earthquake. We saw the conversion of the jailer. And he said, that didn't send us home. It sent us on. We're not afraid. Notice, where does the boldness come from? Verse 2. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Have you ever had, if you've ever tried to share your faith and somebody just blast away at you, what do you do the next time that opportunity comes? You say, well, I go right up and speak to them. Well, God bless you. You're strong. But for most of us, when you have somebody laugh out the side of their face at your witness, the next time witness opportunity comes, the temptation is to say, I'll write you a letter. Right? Paul says, no. He says, we were jailed in Philippi for the preaching of the gospel, and we're not cowards. Our boldness, our ability to be straightforward about the gospel of God, it's in God. It's in God's ability to keep me, in God's ability to sustain me, in God's ability to protect me. That's where our boldness is. You see, some people misunderstand courage. Some of you believe that courage is the absence of fear. That's wrong. The Bible never says that courage is the absence of fear. It's the control of fear. It's my privilege once a week to, again, be teaching preachers over at Grace Community Church at the Talbot Extension. One of the things the guys put down in their things that I want to accomplish in this class is, I don't want to be nervous when I speak in public after I take this class. Now, there's a strange phenomenon that takes place. How many of you have ever had to stand and, you know, if I just went around a room and I said, you... You and you and you and you and you. Come on up. A crazy thing will begin to happen in your body. Besides the fact that it seems like a full flock of butterflies has launched in your stomach. Another physiological phenomenon takes place. And it would be very evident when you get up in front of this microphone. All the spit in your mouth goes to your palms. (laughs) That's what happens. And you hear people talking out. They're trying, they're trying to peel their tongue off their palate. If it wasn't so lack of grace, they would lick their hands just to get some of the soup back in their tongue. You see, that's what happens when you get nervous. You're laughing because you know it's true. Where does courage come from? Is it the absence of fear? Not at all. It is the control of fear. Fear. You see, it's God's ability in our lives and in the Apostle Paul, after being imprisoned, threatened with jail for a long time were it not for an earthquake, he went on down to Thessalonica and he says to Timothy, and he writes back to the Thessalonians, if I was a coward, I would have went back to Jerusalem. But I came to Thessalonica amid much opposition. We better turn to Acts 17 for just a second so you believe me that it's so... Acts 17. I am not proposing up here that wherever you go, you cause a riot. Although it would be nice for a change. Wherever Christians went, if somebody got upset about the truth for a change. Acts 17 is the story of the birth of the church at Thessalonica. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. As per custom and plan and call, verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them, the Jews, and for three Sabbaths, I take that to be three Saturdays, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Verse 5 of Acts 17. But the Jews, becoming jealous, And taking along, some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason. Some of the brethren before city authorities shouting, these men have upset the world. They've come here too. Jason's welcomed them, these old world turners. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Obviously a misquote. Verse 8. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities and they received a pledge from Jason and the others. They released them. In verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Paul says, look, it would have been so easy to say, hey, I've had enough of this at Philippi. I'll go someplace where they're pleasant. No, I tell you, folks, you're not going to break the imprisonment of mediocrity by letting fear, the fear of man's opinion of you, control your life. You've got to break loose. Your boldness... Has got to be in God. They said, Paul's a coward. He said, I'm not a coward. He said, my boldness is in God. We even preach the gospel among you when people were saying, get out of town. There's another charge. Look back at 1 Thessalonians. Again, chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. This is an interesting charge. For our exhortation does not come from error, he says, First Thessalonians 2, 3, or impurity, or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. What's he saying? He says, you know, there are some who are saying, Paul, that you're a manipulator of people like other traveling prophets, that your motives aren't the best and aren't the purest. In fact, You're not motivated properly. You're like the other prophets who come into town. Look closely at verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. We're not up to anything other than the truth. That's what we're about. That's what we're doing. He says, I'm anything but a manipulator. He says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak. He says, hey. When it comes to this business of, am I really doing this for the right reason, God is my witness. We're not out trying to please men, to say to men what they would like to hear. Have you ever been caught in that trap? It's an easy trap to fall in. Every now and then, as a teacher, you have people come up to you and they... an assignment's due and you know that theirs is not in. And a number of things begin to take place. They come up and they say... Uh, Tom, um, I really appreciate your tie today. Great tie, love that tie. Suit, dynamic stuff. That car you drove in, <laughs> number one. I didn't know pastors could afford this. Uh, boy, Tom, you know I've really appreciated the class. It's been great. I mean, the stuff I've learned has dramatically changed my life, and I, I'm just thrilled with this. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with it. What's he up to? He's setting you up for the kill. He's setting me up for the kill. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I want to gratify you so that you won't cut my head off when I say, I've had a lot of other things to do beside the assignment that I got 11 weeks ago. Why? It's deceptive. It's a manipulator. I'll tell you what's going to happen to you in your life. If you start living your life before a lot of people rather than before an audience of one, it will be miserable. Miserable. Whenever Paul lived his life and did what he did and said what he said, ultimately and always in his mind was that God was his witness, that it was God who would do the approving. And you say, well, that's easy. Uh, I run into people all the time. God tells them to do all kinds of things and nobody else. I'm not talking about the agency that God may use. And I happen to believe one of those is the local church for the accountability factor for people in their walk with God. But I'll tell you, you'll be set free if you'll live your life before him and believe that wherever you're at, whoever you're with, whatever you're doing, ultimately you're living it before him. And let's be honest, one day you're going to have to give account to him. And you're not going to be able to stand and, and say, well, you know, you know, I had a professor over at the master's college, Lord, that told me that it was okay. I could do this. No problem. God's going to say, I don't care what he said. I'll take care of him later. It's you that I'm looking at. When you begin to see that we live our lives before an audience of one, it's going to set you free. Mediocrity will not even get close to you. Benign and bland will not even approach a designation of your lifestyle. It did with Paul. It set him free to enjoy the gospel, to enjoy preaching the gospel no matter what people said about him. When someone would say these things about you, your first temptation would be so mad. It's like, Well, if they're going to say that, I'm going to go home no we live our life before an audience of one God himself before whom one day we will stand and give account for what we've done in this life to him oh it'll set you free it'll set you free you won't worry whether it's A, B, C, D or F well you may worry but if you understand it God what do you think about this grade God what do you think about this ministry that's before me Father is this something that I should be involved in Lord you know my heart on this matter you really do Lord, is this heart, where, my heart where it needs to be? You see, the cry of the psalmist is the cry of all godly people who honestly know before whom they live. Search me and know my heart. Try me, Lord. It's going to save you a lot of grief. Believe me. The problem gets stickier, though. Look at verse 5. Now, Paul is beginning to hear that he came, verse 5, with flattering speech And the purpose that he came was with a pretext of greed. Look at it. Verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. What did they say? Paul, you're in it for the money. You say, where did they get that idea from? They've been watching TV church again? (laughs) No, no. You see, in that day, as well as in ours, one of the curses among us is the fact that there are some people in so-called spiritual ministries that are in it for the money. And there's money to be made in it for those who know how to work the things. The accusation was, Paul, you're like all the other traveling prophets. And these prophets used to come through. If you'll remember, one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, 2 John and 3 John, those letters are written regarding people who were coming around as false prophets. And the lady at the church of Ephesus didn't know what to do when they came up to the door. Uh, we're prophets and we're here to stay for a week. Well, what do you do with those kind of people? Well, you send them to Motel 6. no. John says, we don't welcome those, but that, see, it was very common. And these guys would walk around like some of our modern gurus, and they just show up. And there was kind of a, a Middle Eastern hospitality mentality. They said, hey, come on in, eat groceries, you know, we'll take care of things. And so these people were becoming known, and Paul was kind of put in the same category. He says, you know, you came with all this uh, smooth talk and uh, fancy words and a new freedom in Christ and this one God and that Jesus is God's Christ. You've come to say all this so that these people dig deeper in their pockets and see that you get money. Beginning in verse 6, Paul points out that they couldn't pay him enough for what he did. Look at it closely. We didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Hey, we could have said Christ sent us you need to support us later on in first corinthians or second corinthians chapter 9 he will make that point very clear but right now he says we restrain our authority i tell you if you want to be someone that's different in this world quit demanding your rights and start serving it'll scare people to death they won't know what to do with you all right when you go into a restaurant don't act like you're the only one's in there and demand that you be treated top dog it is so amazing to watch people It is so amazing in our day for those people who have the power and the authority who restrict that and restrain it for the sake of a relationship. Hey, juice is everywhere. Everybody likes to have a little juice. They like to be known as the person you've got to talk to to get things done. But among God's people, what will make you different and a person that absolutely revolutionizes the situation is everybody in the room knows you've got the right to do it, But you choose not to extend that right. Man, that'll set you apart. It'll scare people to death. They'll wonder what you're up to. Look at verse 7. Rather than being guys who walked in and put the full Nelson on them to get them to do something, verse 7, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The picture is, is one of the tenderest in the New Testament. Paul says, We're like a mother who has a newborn baby that she's feeding. That's how... Have you ever... You don't see... You know, mothers when they're feeding, her, right. Time for dinner. Wham! Pull them out of there. Here, eat. You do do that. They, hi, how you doing? Good to see you, man. You're cute. You look like your dad. I'll pray for you. Okay. <laughs> they hold them close, and we just had a baby up in the office. Just a few minutes. Everybody's playing with him. It's great. We were all just, we were dragging around the floor. Hey, kid, how do you bounce? We didn't do that. What did we do? We were gentle and careful. We need to be more gentle and careful as believers. We live in a day, and you know Christianity is so fashionable. Oh, it's so fashionable. We're so fashioned. Somebody writes a new book, it's, it's revival for everyone. and Everyone seems to go for it. We live in a day where it's currently vogue to be confrontational in Christianity. I believe Christianity has its measure of confrontation. We as a church have our discipline situations like others do. But one of the things I thirst for, to break away from mediocrity, is to be gentle. As a mother who's nursing her baby, to be gentle, to come up to a brother or sister who's struggling, say, "Hey, I've heard you've been sinning. You're paying now. Feel better now that I've told you that you're a sinner." You ever just considered being gentle? Turn to Galatians six. This is where some people get this all mixed up in my mind. Uh, we've been—we're jerking brothers and sisters around all over the planet. Scary to me, really is. If you want to be someone that really gets things going someplace, and, and there's a sense of excitement, and gentleness, I have heard this verse used these sections so many times for really getting people straightened out who are struggling, brethren, Galatians six one. If a man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Each one looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Hey, take it easy. Why? You may be the one next time, right? The word used for the restore there is the word actually for putting a bone back in place or mending fishing nets. How many of you have ever had a dislocated something? All right? I had a dislocated little finger in church softball twice, same finger. It hurt. The first time I went to the doctor, I was behind the lady who was forty six years old who fell off of a skating board. And suddenly the the triage that they do there is phenomenal and, and I was I was behind and And the second time I was up in Colorado, I was working with a church softball team. A guy hit a line drive, and I waved up like I was going to be somebody fancy and flag it. And it drove the middle knuckle all the way back to the back knuckle. And I looked at it, and immediately I knew something was an error there. (laughs) Took my mitt off on the ground. And, of course, in every church softball team, there's a guy who thinks that he's a doctor. He's a frustrated physician. And so I had this guy come out, I'll fix that for you, Tom, I know exactly what to do. And I said, man, fix it, it really hurts. And he says, fine, I'll do it. He jerked me around second base for about three minutes. Said, feel better? I know it doesn't feel better. I said, kick me to someone who knows what they're doing. Let's go to emergency. We go to emergency and we go in there. And this gentleman doesn't say, he doesn't come out and say, hey, boy, we're going to jerk you around the room, the orthopedic room, see if you feel better. Now, he came over and he says, how you doing? I said, well, not so good. What's the problem? I held this thing up, and it was pointed north, and my hand was pointed south. He said, you do have a problem, don't you? I said, that's why I'm here. And he said, uh, what are we going to do about that? And I said, I'd really appreciate it if you'd put it back like it's supposed to be. He said, we may have to operate. I said, no, 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 no. I said, just grab a hold of it. And he was so kind. He took he took my arm, and he stuck it under here, and he and he grabbed a hold of it. And he said, now, how are you feeling? I said, fine. You know, and he had given me a couple of shots of Novocaine that hurt worse than than the other. And uh, he grabbed a hold of it, and he burred down on it, and I pushed it. Arrgh. Didn't work. Oh, man, I said, you got to be kidding. No, he said, still. He said, we're going to have to operate. I said, no, we're not. I said, i got prayer meeting in 30 minutes, man. we got to get this. Let's get this back It's Wednesday night. i got to be a prayer meeting. He said, okay, so now I'm going to have to dislocate it again to put it. I said, whatever, do it, you know. So he grabbed a hold of her and he bent it back till the fingernail touched the top of my palm. Got her all back, you know. And then he's all through. And all of a sudden, some of you have had dislocated. You know, the minute it goes in, oh, wonderful. God's creation is back in order. man. And I, I wiggle it. It was stiff, but it was fun to see it move again. And he said, you look a little pale. Huh. I said, you let me jerk you around the room by your little finger for a little while and see how you look. But the man basically was gentle. You really want to get something going where you're at and blast yourself out of blandness? Don't be a person who runs into the lives of people with a wombat. Gently. Like a mother nursing her child. There's going to be pain. It's always difficult when somebody's out of joint in the body. But that pain can be reduced when the people who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in ministry and seeing lives changed and mediocrity and blandness being filed under never again. Come in in gentleness. Gentleness. Look back at 1 Thessalonians with me. Verse 8. He actually told someone that he liked them. For some reason among Christians we always have to use some fancy words. Brother, I really appreciate you in the Lord. That's about as generic as it gets. Okay, if you have a fond affection for someone, especially in light of the upcoming banquet, let them know that, will you? It'll make the invitation a lot easier if you say the word. If you come up to someone and say, I really appreciate you and the Lord, sister, could you go with me to dinner? She has every right not to be gentle with you. She should do this hip throw that this lady did up here. Verse 8, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, our very lives, ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. You know, it's possible in ministry that is bland just to give them the facts. That's another fashionable thing that's going on today. We just present the truth and then beat it, we don't give a part of ourselves. Someday, when you have time, if you want to see how the apostle lived this out in the most personal epistle I think he ever wrote, you look at 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. He says, I labored, I struggled. Hey, when I gave you the truth, I gave you a piece of me. A piece of me. What do you give when you give the truth to people in the ministries that you have? What do you give on campus? Do you give uh, what I had to give here for six months, and still give with the people in the church who drive by my house and honk the horn? I don't know who they are. I know more now who they are, but I used I had a generic wave and smile when they went by. I I didn't know who these people were. They're very kind and friendly. Now I know better. Hi, how you doing? That's as far as I'm able to go. I'm getting to their names now. But do you do do you impart yourself in your ministry? Do you really give a piece of you? into what you're involved in, in the life of your fellow students? Are you able to say to them, you know, I have, a, I have a fond affection. I really care for you. It would be the most disappointing, depressing marriage that I can think of when a husband or wife would say to one another, hey, I really like you. I'll see you at six. They don't give themselves. You see, part of giving yourselves is being open. And this integrity that he developed by being open, he says, we really like you. Look closely at the end of verse 8. You've become very dear to us. You people are special. You mean something. Do you know what it means to someone when you genuinely feel that for them as a brother or sister in Christ and you tell them that? You mean something. You're worth something to me. I tell you, they'll never be able to be the same again. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day so as not to burden any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. Hey, we could have charged you as apostles and had every right to receive pay but I made tents in the day so I could preach at night you couldn't have paid us enough remember the charge in this area is you're a prophet for pay Paul we know that Paul says no way I gave myself to you I care about you you could never pay me enough to care for you like I care for you you could have never paid me enough to work as hard as I worked. you wanna be different you wanna break the blandness don't let yourself be deceived as you're in the educational process thinking that you're going to work harder in ministry than you work at your studies. Don't be fooled. You won't. Unless God works in an unbelievable way in your life, the way you approach what we call schoolwork is the same way you're going to approach work once you're out of school. It's just going to work different, but it'll be almost the same. Don't fool yourself say, boy, I, you know, this stuff, you got to take biology and sociology and Now, when I really get out in the world, I'm going to work hard. For some of you preparing for ministry, you say, well, I'm going to really study the Bible. This Bible stuff they're teaching is now not relative to life. I'll just take the test and then do the old flusheroo. As soon as I leave the room, it's gone. I'll work on something else that's more important. I'll really get out there. But when I get into that ministry that God calls me to, boy, am I going to be a worker. No, you won't. You're not going to work any harder at your ministry than you're learning to work now in your studies. I've seen it. I've watched it in my own life. Had to struggle with it. You'll struggle with it too unless you come to grips with it. You really want to be different? A cut above mediocre? Somewhere beyond bland? Be a person who works hard in ministry. The primary ministry God has given you now is studies. Look at the last two verses of this section. 10, oh, last three, 10 11, and 12. Your witnesses, and here it is, so is God. How devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly we behave before you. Apparently, there was some suggestion that they weren't really that holy. They weren't really that moral. And by golly, you could really, you could really lay a charge against them. There were some things that they were not blameless on. Paul says, hey, we walk as we should. And God is our witness. Verse 11, just as you know, we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his children. You notice the intimacy of the language he's used both mother and father in these 12 verses. Just like a dad would grab a hold of one of his children and say, come on you can do it I believe in you you're a part of this family it can be done and you're the one that's going to do it that's the way we've come to you we haven't stood on the sideline as the professional said well hopefully one could make it the father gets in there when I coach my boys in soccer I say now boys wow I'm not sure you may get killed today out there it's a big team at our house for Saturday morning I serve tiger milk with the pancakes at our house I said boys you can do it don't worry if they're two years older and two feet taller. We play whoever shows up. And we can do it. Paul says, That's what I've done with you. Some people say I just came and I wasn't I was kind of a motley, checkered, moral person. I came as a father. Verse twelve, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Be careful this morning. Some of the things I've shared with you from this passage were basically Paul's defense. But buried in them are the ways that you and I and you who are new students and old students and certainly in the beginnings of a new phase in the history of the Master's College. Let's make this a different place. Let's make it a place that is a cut above. Let's make it a place where bland is not considered spiritual. Where being mediocre is not considered deep. But where we are different. You are different. And a school will be no different than its student body. The Apostle Paul caused a change wherever he went because he would not settle for middle ground. It was either all the ground or no ground at all. Ultimately, one day, we're going to be buried if the Lord Jesus doesn't return. And what they put on our tombstone, I don't know if you've ever done it. It's a very interesting thing. After funerals, sometimes I go up here at Eternal Valley or wherever I'm at. And after the funeral's over, um, rather than just take right off, it takes me a while to undo from that. Those are not pleasant times for me. They're hurtful times. And this week, I appreciate if you pray for me, I've got to bury two babies in the next two days. One died yesterday, and one is probably going to die at UCLA Medical Center sometime today. Those are not fun. But what do you, when you walk in the in the graves, it's interesting to see beloved husband and father, cherished son. What do you put on the tombstone of a person who's not mediocre. A number of things. But in a Midwestern town, they had a problem with a lady who was. I never want any of us to ever be that way. That's my pet peeve this morning. I've tried to share with you from some of First Thessalonians two. They had a lady named Miss Jones. Elderly, spinister lived in a small Midwestern community. She had the notoriety of being the oldest resident of the town. One day she died. The editor of the local newspaper wanted to print a little caption became uh commemorating her death. However, The more he thought about it, the more he became aware that while Mrs. Jones had never done anything terribly wrong, she hadn't been uh, put in jail, she had never been caught drunk in town, yet she had never actually done anything of note. While musing over this, the editor went down to have his morning cup of coffee and met the owner of the tombstone establishment in the little community. And the editor of the paper poured out his soul to this guy, and the tombstone proprietor said, you know, I'm having the same problem. He wanted to put something on Miss Jones' tombstone besides Miss Nancy Jones. Born such and such a date, died such and such a date. But he couldn't think of anything of significance that she had ever done. The editor decided to go back to his office and assign the first reporter he came across the task of writing up a small article suitable for both the paper and the tombstone. Upon returning to the office, the only fellow around was a sports editor. So he gave him the job. They tell me today that if you pass through this mid, uh, little Midwestern community, you'll find the following statement out in the graveyard on the tombstone of Miss Nancy Jones. Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. For her life, held no tears. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. Whatever they write on our life, whether it's on stone or they say about us afterward, God help us that it's never no hits, no runs, no errors. God preserve us from mediocrity. Let's pray. Father, there's so many folks who would give us input that are not believers regarding what they they think believers are like. I thank you that in the Apostle Paul's defense of his ministry at Thessalonica, we begin to see some of the things that can make us more than mediocre. I pray that you would protect us from that, from blandness and being benign, that we would be people who, wherever we go, are such an instrument of the Spirit of God that things begin to happen. I pray that that will be true for each student who has shared this chapel with me today. I pray it will be true of me. Help none of us slip into rut-oriented living. We don't want to do that. We want to live above. We want to live beyond. We want to live in a way that communicates the excitement and the joy and the fullness and the completeness and the satisfaction and the enthusiasm that comes with being rightly related to God by faith in Christ. Oh, God, I pray you'll make that so in Jesus' name. Amen.